0: Thank you again so much, worship team. Always great to be to be brought to that place of adoration before God. When you sense his presence, know he's so here with us, and we can, we can exalt him in this kind of manner. Good to see all of you brave the storm this morning, and hearty souls that you are. Come out and some special friends here as well this morning. Past associations, I, I, I could call you, I suppose, but not really. Ongoing relationships probably be the best way of describing it. And some visitors today as well, folks who are not normally here. We want to welcome you. I want to speak today on a topic entitled Words to Keep You Going. <laughs> which I thought maybe after some of you are feeling your shoulders a little tired with the blower and with the shovel and all of the other things with winter, this might be the right kind of topic today, words to keep your going. Now, Before I was, a, I was in ministry, which is, goes a long ways back now, I was a journalist. I was a person who essentially got paid for being nosy. And that means no disrespect to uh, to Brian McHugh, who's in the same business this morning. <laughs> Thought I'd better offer that as a disclaimer. I was a hired snoop uh, because people really have an innate need to satisfy their curiosity. People want to know what's going on around them. And, uh, you know, we have sayings among us that indicate that i've so often I've said something to something that says, you don't say, well, I just did, and when you write about it or when you bro- when you broadcast it, there's always something wonderful about bringing someone a piece of news that they hadn't heard before, something like a scoop well during the second uh, during the first World War, the Associated Press had a distinguished foreign correspondent whose name was Vern Hoglund. Now, this man was embedded in combat situations long before it became a familiar term in the first Gulf War that most of us have, have very good mem- memories of. During heavy fighting in the Far East, Hogland bailed out of a crippled bomber. And for 47 days, he wandered through the jungles and the mountains of the country into which he was thrown, Eventually, his body was covered with ulcers and sores. He lost nearly half his total body weight. And finally, one day, he stumbled out of the jungle into civilization again. After the war, Vern Hoagland was decorated by the famous U.S. General Douglas MacArthur, presented with the silver star for gallantry, and was hailed as a hero, a real survivor, not like some of these... Weird little survivors we see in reality shows who've survived nothing but the director's cut, in my mind. In 1992, Hogland published a book about his test of endurance. And when writing of his adventure, Hogland said he was sustained by one thing. He constantly repeated, The Lord is my shepherd. And Hogland said, Although he was lost, he knew that. He knew that back home, his friends and his family were praying for him, and it was that knowledge that kept him going. But the words that kept him going specifically were these, the Lord is my shepherd. And he said, I knew God was my shepherd, and here's what he said in his own words from his book, as the secret to his, to his survival. He said, it was amazing how it worked. I would be at the point of complete exhaustion and ready to give up and just fall down and die. I felt as though I could not lift even one foot in front of the other any longer to hold on to the struggle of life. Then I would say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And it would happen. God would provide for me. I would look, and there just within my reach on the next step would be edible berries or chewable grass. Just beyond the next tree, I would stumble onto a little stream of pure water, and thus God sustained me and kept me going. Now, what's so amazing about Psalm 23? Well, let's hear it this morning again, freshly in our minds. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Many of you can recite it by heart and have been able to do so since childhood. It's absolutely amazing that the words of a shepherd boy 3,000 years ago can have such a profound effect upon a person. Millions of people have drawn immediate consolation and strength from these simple verses. It adorns the covers of countless church bulletins. It's written up on posters. There are so many cards and books Google Psalm 23 and press your images button, and you can go on practically to infinity just looking at people's depiction of what it ought to look like. It's still the topic of sermons, as I proved this morning, and a funeral without it just doesn't seem the same. I know many people who live a long distance from the gates of the kingdom of God, but let a severe pain grip them or a catastrophe look at, lurk at their door, and the 23rd Psalm becomes words that they begin to repeat. But it's the fifth verse that I want to focus specifically on this morning because it's got such irony in it. It demands our attention, and here's what it says. Listen to it again. You prepare a table before me, In the presence of my enemies. That gripped me in the past week. A table in the midst of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And the scene is having dinner with someone who hates you. Someone who's totally opposed to you. You're able to sit down and to eat in that kind of environment. Now have you ever eaten at a hostile table? I have. I've eaten where I've not been appreciated, and I've always thought that if there ever was a time for finger foods, that's it. (laughs) I have been at tables where I would be afraid if those I sat with had access to forks and knives, because I think I might have become the target of eating utensils, rather than used them on food, they probably would have used them on me. I know that you look at me and say, he's such a nice guy. I don't know how this could have happened. (laughs) Believe me, believe me, there are people who would willingly do that. Now, David's theme as he develops his psalm is refuge in the midst of danger. He contrasts the quietness of life, the solitude and the beauty of life with something that is altogether opposite to that, Running and fighting are the kind of activities that we associate with engaging enemies. And to eat, the heat of battle is no time to sit down and eat. David's enemies are present, but in his psalm, God sets a table for him. And we can't grasp the, the significance of this verse in our time or in our country, but in other times and other places it has some really rich, rich meaning. And maybe you can grasp it a little bit if you've ever enjoyed the presence of God and the provisions of God in a time when you had nothing else besides. And you understand the Lord is my shepherd, and you understand his table. The story is told of a, a wonderful elderly Christian lady. She had very little money, lived in a run down house, but she was always praising the Lord. Her only problems were with the old man who lived next door. He was always trying to prove to her there was no God. And one day, as the old man was walking by her house, he noticed a woman through an open window. She was kneeling down in prayer, so he crept over to the window to eavesdrop a little to see if he could hear what 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 she was saying. And here's what she was praying. Lord, you've always given me what I've needed. And now you know that I don't have any money. I'm completely out of groceries, and I won't get another check for a week. And she continued to pray, somehow, Lord, can you get me some groceries? The man had heard all he needed. He crept away from the window, ran down to the grocery store. He purchased milk and bread and lunch meat. He went back to the woman's house carrying the groceries. He set the bag down by her door, rang the bell, and hid beside the house. Now you can imagine how the woman reacted to seeing a bag of groceries outside her door. She threw her hands over her head and began praising the Lord. Thank you, Jesus, she shouted. I was without food and you provided the groceries. And it's here that the verse fits about the table prepared in the midst of enemies. About that time, the old man jumped out from behind the house and said, I've got you now. But she was a little too busy praising God to pay much attention to him. And he kept repeating, I told you there was no God. It wasn't Jesus who gave you the groceries, it was me. (laughs) It's a miracle, the woman said, Jesus got me all these groceries and got the devil to pay for them. Good table in a bad place. Sometimes it happens for us. You see, David understood the customs of his time. He understood what it was like to be a wanted man. He knew what it was like to have a price on his head. He knew that his life could be demanded of him at any time. And see, if you read his full story and you'll find out that he lived among his enemies as he fled from the wrath of King Saul... He spent long hours in the cave of Abdullam that you'll read about in his story. He lived in disguise among those who would have killed them if they they knew his, his identity. He understood. He was writing about his own experience. You see, he also knew that the Mosaic Code contained a law. That a murder, premeditated or not, could be avenged by someone who was called the Avenger of Blood. And it was perhaps David's experience to watch someone run for their life much as he had across the barren hills of Bethlehem. The sweet singer of Israel might have seen a fugitive with his pursuer close behind him reach a tent belonging to someone else and grab the rope of the tent. The pursuer would not dare go any further. He'd stop dead in his tracks... Because when you reached another person's house, you had found sanctuary there. Inside of someone else's tent, you would become the ward of that person. And the laws of hospitality meant that no pursuer could enter that place of sanctuary and take revenge upon you. And so at David's table, if David was the owner of the tent, this man could have found refuge because hospitality was a solemn a solemn commitment and the person who would avenge blood couldn't enter there. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Not even someone who was your enemy could take advantage of you inside their own home. The laws of hospitality were that strong. This is the picture Psalm 23 helps me see. But who's your enemy? Who hounds you? Who dogs your every step? We know that death and hell stalk the human race. Evil forces with deadly intent reach out to grasp us. We have lived, some of us have lived at times on the edge of terminal illness. Some of you have been in accidents where you narrowly escaped injury or death. I've been there as well. Your life can literally hang by a thread. A physician might look at your family and say, there's, there's no hope left. On the other side of things, there are times when pretty lures with concealed hooks are cast before our eyes. High bids are made for us outside the church, and we can also have problems inside. If you walk through Cornerbrook today, there are people who are bound and blinded and held in captivity, and death will release them to their enemy. Everyone needs a tent to run to. Everyone needs a refuge. David felt it so often. And for us, as we've sung this morning, I've been convinced, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You see, the place of refuge for us, the place where God has set such a table is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's our refuge and our security. At the cross, I'm safe from the hostility of this world. At the cross, the enemy stops cold. He cannot invade the sanctuary that is created by the blood of Jesus Christ. I have become and you have become the possession of Almighty God because he has saved us. And there's power in the blood of Jesus Christ. See, I recall as a boy that Christians used to have an old phrase when evil would stalk a person or raise its gory head and make a bid for our souls. I've known Christians who would tell me that my best bet at that time was to plead the blood of Jesus Christ. Under pressure, it was—it—it always was and still is a cry for refuge. I've heard it in your prayers in this church. Lord, cover me afresh with the blood of the cross. I've heard it here, because, and I think by saying it, we're saying nothing can touch us there. We're inviolate. Maybe the body can be affected, but nobody can steal the soul that's committed to Jesus Christ. I recall going to a home before I was a pastor where a man struggled against terrible things that held him as a slave. And after intense and prevailing prayer, We saw the yoke of bondage broken on his life, and I saw a young man who was released from his own darkness weep for three hours as the Lord cleansed him. Just nonstop crying for three three hours. He cried till there were no more tears. You see, our our, 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 our hymns speak to our experience, and I see it through the verse of a hymn. I don't know if we ever sing this anymore, but it came back to me. I see a new creation rise. I hear the speaking blood. It speaks my thankful heart, replies. Cleanse neath its precious flood. And it comes from a hymn called the Cleansing Wave. I see, I see. You see, the Lord prepared a banquet for us in the presence of our enemies as we observed communion here last Sunday. As the first Lord's Supper was held, consider the fact that Jesus' betrayal was unfolding. A contingent of armed soldiers were en route to arrest the Son of God in the Garden of Gethsemane. And for all of that, there was calmness in the life of Jesus, so much so that he wouldn't suffer any violence. The man who Peter cut his ear off was instantly healed by the Lord's touch. You see, nothing unclean really draws near the communion table if communion is pure. On the table there's bread, the symbol of Christ's broken body, and it bears witness that by brokenness we are made, made whole. That's the composition of the table of, of the Lord. It lifts an eternal sacrifice to eclipse all of the good deeds of human beings and serves notice to us that the Lamb of God who was broken for us had no stain of sin upon him. And so there's acceptance in the presence of God for us because his body was broken for us and bruised for us. On the table we also put wine and its color reminds us that blood was spilled to remove the stains of sin. The communion cup reminds me a New Testament has been sealed and the liquid that passes my lips from time, time to time tells me that God has sent refreshment to the fallen sons and daughters of Adam. Christ is perfect in his brokenness and the sacrifice of Christ is the beginning of a banquet for the soul. We receive at his table... And there can be anything in the world going on around us, but at the table of the Lord there is sweet communion with God, because, and, the, and the symbols remind me that I have peace with God in the presence of whatever else is pressuring me at that moment. I think that's what David felt in God's presence when he said, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Peace with God in the midst of the storms of life. The table that God sets for you and me is well set. The one who sits there finds the Lord to be a gracious host. There's welcome at the Lord's table. He leads his sheep to green pastures. He leads us beside still still waters. I remember in the Gospels, Jesus had to chastise a poor host. And Jesus said, when I arrived at your house, there was not a drop of oil... To anoint my head, there was no kiss of welcome. There was nothing for me. Nothing for him when he arrived as a guest. But I find that when I come to God, there's always a welcome for me. We sing again, there's room at the cross for you. There's plenty at the table of God. There's plenty for you and there's plenty for me. We often don't treat each other with the same kind of kindness. There's a wealthy lady named Mrs. Willencott. She was very frugal. Some of us would say she was downright cheap. When her husband died, she asked the newspaper how much it would cost for a death notice. They said it'll cost you $2 for every five words this wealthy woman said, can I pay for just two words? The two words were, Willincott dead. The newspaper replied and said, no, $2 is the minimum. You still have three words left over. And Mrs. Willincott thought for a moment, and she said, Willincott dead, Cadillac for sale. Sometimes that's the way life works, is not it? You deal with people and you get the cheap and dirty. You come to God, you get the expansive. You get the gracious. You get a welcome and an all-encompassing package that gets delivered to our lives. David tells us that at the table of the Lord in the presence of enemies, our cup can overflow. If we find we're empty... And if you find you're empty as a Christian today, it is possible we've overturned the cup. Sometimes when I've gone to places that featured lots of, of cheap coffee, when I had enough of the swill, sometimes what you do to tell your server you don't want anymore is to take your cup and turn it over on your, on your table. Say, please don't serve me any more of that. You try to do it as graciously as you can, and you don't comment on the coffee. But I think sometimes we've overturned a cup on what God wants to do for us, and whatever he puts into our cup is going to be good. If people could only accept what Christ has done for them, they'd be a lot freer from the snares and the devices of the devil. We would flee to the cross because there, if I understand this psalm, there's goodness and mercy all the days of my life. That's what God provides. Let me just set a couple of things up for you this, this morning. At the cross, the enemy who drags the sins of your past up bows in defeat. God washes away yesterday. At the cross, sin is forgiven, and the devil is driven from your door, and when, when he comes knocking... With what you used to be, we can say, my sins are gone. The words Paul offered to the Romans, and I've preached on it since I've been here. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. At the cross, God announced that the fiery darts of the enemy could, uh, could be extinguished. And we have to be careful that we don't offer the devil target practice because when we walk away from the cross, we become targets. When we reject Him in our lives... Our lives often get open to some terrible things. A reporter was interviewing an old man on on his 100th birthday. He said, what are you most proud of? And the man said this, well, I don't have a single enemy in the world. Well, what a beautiful thought, the reporter said. How inspirational. Yep, the the centenarian said I've outlived every last one of them. I thought, well, that's a little different than what I thought. It's not that he had forgiven them all or made, turned them into friends. He just simply stayed alive longer than them. Let me tell you the truth of something: the cross of Jesus Christ will 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 outlive and outlast and outperform everything you and I know of. The things that God has put together as what as as what gets us through time and into eternity, is better than anything this world could ever create. No wonder when Paul looked at life through the glory of the cross, he said these kinds of words. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash or in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet Paul says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But he doesn't end on that note. He says, but thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Even in the midst of our greatest enemy, death, God prepares a table of life. At the cross, death stung our great shepherd. Most everyone knows that when a bee stings, it leaves its stinger in our flesh, and some people say it'll never sting again. I've, I've let a few hornets and bees test that theory on me. You see, Jesus rose from the grave. And even death became subject to him. And one of these days, your change and my change will come. Because sanctuary and refuge doesn't end with death, with physical death. You'll stand on streets of gold, free from your from your predators and pursuers and everything that has ever threatened your life. A day of complete release is coming. And the final verse of Psalm 23 will be a reality in your life and and mine. And it must have been wonderful for David, who had so much blood on his hands and so much yet to spill after he had written this, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's so much that Psalm 23 has for Such a wonderful perspective on life. Let me close with an account this morning that I'm just simply going to read you. Ugandan Bishop Festo Kivangere, who died in 1988, I believe, I sometimes follow some of these famous people because this man was known as the Billy Graham of Africa. He's written about the Idi Amin years in Uganda. And in particular, the 1973 execution by firing squad of three men from his diocese. And he says these words: "Look him up sometime, Festo Kivengere. February 10th began as a sad day for us in Kabale. People were commanded to come to the stadium and witness the execution. Death, permeate, death permeated the atmosphere." A silent crowd of 3,000 was there to watch. I had permission from the authorities to speak to the men before they died, and two of my fellow ministers were with me. They brought the men in a truck and unloaded them. They were handcuffed and their feet were chained. The firing squad stood to attention. As we walked into the center of the stadium, I was wondering what to say. How do you give the gospel to doomed men who are probably seething with rage? We approached them from behind, and as they turned to look at us, what a sight! Their faces were all alight with an unmistakable glow and radiance. And before we could say anything, one of them burst out. Bishop, thank you for coming. I wanted to tell you, the day I was arrested in my prison cell, I asked the Lord Jesus to come into my heart. He came in and forgave me all my sins. Heaven is now open, and there is nothing between me and my God. Please tell my wife and children that I'm going to be with Jesus. Asked them to accept them into their lives as I did. The other two men told similar stories, excitedly raising their hands, which rattled their handcuffs. And I felt that what I needed to do was to talk to the soldiers, not to the condemned. So I translated what the men had said into a language the soldiers understood. The military men were standing there with guns cocked and bewilderment on their faces. They were so dumbfounded that they forgot to put the hoods over the men's faces. This was actually reported in the media during that time. The three faced a firing squad standing close, close together. They looked toward the people and began to wave handcuffs and all. The people waved back. Then shots were fired, and the three were with Jesus. We stood in front of them, our own hearts throbbing with joy, mingled with tears. It was a day never to be forgotten. Though dead, the men spoke loudly to all of of Kajizi district and beyond, so that there was an upsurge of life in Christ which challenges death and defeats it. The next Sunday I was preaching to a huge crowd in the hometown of one of the executed men, Again, the feel of death was over the, con- the congregation, but when I gave them the testimony of their man and how he died, there erupted a great song of praise to Jesus. Many turned to the Lord there. I read that story, re- reread it in the past week. How is it possible? Like Vern Hoglund, who fought for his life in the jungle. There are times in all of our lives when we need someone or something to keep us going. And I think David gives us the answer. It's the Lord who's our shepherd. The psalmist offered me these intriguing words. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. You see, the Good Shepherd makes it possible for us to sit at a good table, even when we find ourselves in a bad place. I want us to bow for a moment in prayer, and I want the worship team to assemble again. And I want them to sing that beautiful song, He Knows My Name. And as they do that today, I want us I want us to make what the psalm says personal for each of us and to understand fully that wherever you are if you need words to keep you going today scriptures are filled with them I've only chosen one short psalm words to keep you going that begin with such assurance, the Lord is my shepherd, takes us into the depth of human experience, and concludes that we are eternally with Him. And today, to make it personal, sing those words again, He knows my name. Isn't it a consolation to our soul? Father, thank you for this day that you've given us. Sometimes a storm on the outside is, is only a mirror reflection of storms that rage on the inside. All of us have been through through them. All of us know that life consists of moments like that. We're glad we don't have to live there continually. But when we go through the storm, help us to remember that there is a shepherd who leads There's a shepherd who loves us. Jesus tells us we're valuable. He tells us that we are so precious that he was willing to die for us. To endure the horrors of the cross. To go through the the absolute humility of leaving a heavenly station to become a man. But oh, what you've done for us today. Our hearts are alive with the meaning of what your sacrifice has meant. And so, Lord, as we sing this, we sing it as a song of praise unto you. We thank you from the depths of our soul for the goodness that we enjoy because you indeed are our shepherd, the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. We love you and we thank you. In Christ's name. Amen. Amen.